Good morning. Am I on? Okay. For those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Day Kim. I'm the pastoral resident here at Cornerstone. For those of you who do know who I am, but you may not be able to recognize me right now, it's because I'm wearing this suit jacket on top of. It doesn't fit with the whole, I don't have a blazer, um, which I need to seriously, seriously invest in one now that I think about it. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 10. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever will draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose greater designer and builder is God. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that as we listen to your words, may they pierce our hearts because they're your words. And as your people, Lord, may we be drawn to your words, and may we grow to love you. May we grow to be more in awe of who you are, and may we grow to live lives that reflect that you are our glory and you are our life. Lord, we pray that you will show us Christ, and may we bow before him, because all glory is owed to him. So would you bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A, a priest boards an airplane for the very first time in his life. And as they were about to take off, the flight attendant walking by, she noticed that with his right hand, he was gripping tightly a small pocketbook ver- a Bible of the King James Version. And with his other hand, he was shaking in fear while his eyes are closed and he's mumbling prayers. So the flight attendant comes around, and she, she asks this man if she could uh, bring anything to calm his fears, to which the man says that there's nothing that could calm his fears at the moment because it's the first time flying. And then the flight attendant says to the priest, Sir, I am shocked at you. You surprised me. I mean, obviously, you're a man of faith. You should be the last person here worried about flying. Don't you have faith in God? To this, the priest opens his eyes, looks at the 
flight attendant, he says, young lady, the promise in scripture is, lo, I am with you always. It doesn't say anything about high. <laughs> the moral of the story is, get yourselves an ESV Bible because that's the extra spiritual version. Uh, Faith and faithfulness, as we've been church, as a church, we've been going through the fruit of the Spirit, and this week, uh, today, we're discussing faith and faithfulness, and we're discussing how they're different from world virtues or world definitions of these same virtues. Faith or faithfulness is probably one of the most misinterpreted description among the fruit of the Spirit, and what I mean by that is this. If you say to someone, I am a faithful man or I'm a faithful woman, the likelihood that they'll interpret that as, I'm a religious person, is higher than if you were to say to them, I'm a good person, I'm a joyful person, I'm a gentle person. Because faith and faithfulness has a broad range of meanings. And most of the times, it can fall upon religion. Faithfulness can mean being reliable to dependable or hopeful and trustful in things that we cannot see. Two Sundays ago, we looked at the fruit of goodness and how goodness is the opposite of phoniness or falsehood. So goodness is not being two-faced in living double lives inside and outside of the church. It's being consistent. And there's some overlap here, goodness and faithfulness, because to live truthfully, truthful lives, is also to live faithfully, faithful lives. So you could define faithfulness as being consistent. But today, I want to look at faithfulness from another angle, which the author of Hebrews presents us with. And perhaps a definition of faith and faithfulness that for some of us, we often neglect. And for others, we've never heard of this one. Faith, the gospel truth, or the main point of our passage that the, Hebrew, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is trying to convey to us is that faith in Christ can only empower faithfulness in us. So faith in Christ alone empowers faithfulness in us. There are three points um, we can learn from this passage about faith. The author of Hebrews explains to us, number one, what faith is. Secondly, what faith does. And thirdly, how we get this faith. So we'll cover um, in our time what faith is, what faith does, and how we get this faith. So what is faith? Well, verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. From this verse, we know what faith is. Faith is, first of all, God-given. Hebrews tells us that this hope and conviction are of things that we cannot see. They're beyond this world. And unless there was a divine intervention from God to give us these convictions, we would have no convictions of things that are not seen. So faith is not produced by our own willpower. It's God-given. Secondly, verse 3 goes on to describe what faith is and define for us that term. It tells us that by faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith is not belief in the existence of God. That's not what faith is. Because if that were the definition of faith, then we would have to argue that demons who believe in God, who know that there is a God, are faithful. 
faith is rather a, the work of the Holy Spirit is God-given, which makes us reinterpret our entire understanding of the world and who we are based on, who, on the fact that God is who He says He is presented to us in His Word. Faith, again, is the work of the Holy Spirit to reinterpret our whole lives based on the fact that God is who He says He is. You could say that faith is the work of the Holy Spirit that changes our life narratives and with it our identities. And this is what I mean. We all have life narratives. Julie Beck, an associate editor of The Atlantic, she wrote this fascinating piece describing how human beings were wired to make stories out of our life experiences and who we are and what we have to do. And those stories influence what's valuable and what's not, what we want to pursue and what we don't. We all have life narratives. She argues that at one point, we're all actors that move, eventually as we develop our life stories, we move to directors. She points out that when you're young, when we're children, we are actors. We're told by our parents what to do, what to value, what not to do, where to go, where not to go. But eventually as we grow, we become our own directors. We take all the information that has been bestowed upon us and we decide what's important, what's not, who I am, what I have to do and what I don't have to do. Some would call that teenagers. But it's true. Everybody develops a life story of what's valuable and not. And those narratives are those life narratives that we develop. They tell us why we do the things we do. All to say, we're more than just gravestones which display your name, your date of birth, and your date of death. But rather, behind every fact about us, we have a story which we learn to weave in with our life. So for a, let me give you an example of what a life narrative looks like. I am a son of immigrant parents who early in their 30s, they left their home country, family, and friends so that their children could get a good education and a better life. So all throughout high school and college and even today, right now, I work hard, I study hard, all because I am the product of their sacrifice Uh, blood and tears. So if I were to not achieve success, their life story will will come to vanity. It will be, I, I would be a failure. So that is the life narrative that drives me to perform highly. Another life story could be the American dream. You're the children of successful parents who worked hard and worked towards a good retirement fund. So your life narrative is to work hard, produce something that's meaningful, and stick to the American way. This is what Americans do. We, we go to college. We get a job. We get married. We have 2.5 kids or five if you live in Southern Maryland. Um, <laughs> Get a big house with enough room for guests, a long backyard, and cookouts, cookouts in the weekends, and a growing bank account. Because anything other than that is not un-American. That's your life story. That's what drives you to do the things you do. Or perhaps your life story is to live a good moral life. You were taught certain values and brought up with, the, with strong teachings of right and wrong by your parents. And your life narrative is to uphold these values because you were taught better so you can be distinguished and different from the rest. 
that's your life story. And perhaps you, you come to church and you, and you believe in, in Jesus and you call yourself a Christian because Christianity just happens to fit with your good moral life story. Be a good person. For others, perhaps your life story, your life narrative is one of finding freedom. Since a young age, you felt trapped or oppressed by your parents or families or, cir- or circumstances, and that way of life is not who you are. It's not where you thrive. It's not where you feel most free. So your life narrative is to go out in the world and find whatever you feel comfortable and at home. That's your life narrative. We can think, we can think of life narratives as goals and strategies. And this is what I mean. On, a, on one of our first dates, my, my wife and I went hiking, and we attempted to hike three different mountain trails in one day. Understand, three different mountain trails in one day is no easy task, but we attempted to do it in one day. If you were to ask her why she wanted to hike the three different mountain trails in one day, she would tell you something along the lines of, well, it's a good exercise. I love hiking. This is what makes me feel like I've accomplished something, and, and the, view, the view will be beautiful and worth it. All noble causes. If you were to ask me why I attempted to hike three different mountain trails in one day, I would have more, a more primal life narrative. I would tell you because she was cute. I thought she was cute. So I didn't, I didn't, that's my life. That was the purpose that drove me to climb three different mountain trails. Julie Beck is echoing what Scripture also teaches, that we all have life narratives. We all have goals for our lives. We're all wired to take in information, and along our life, we're wired to set strategies to reach that goal. And as we gather data, we take it upon ourselves to give, us, to give ourselves meanings, to give ourselves why we do the things we're doing. We're all trying to answer this one question, which is, what is my life meant to be? What is my life going to amount to? The book of Judges gives us a good answer to how people often apart live, try to develop their life narratives apart from God, which is we live our lives based on our own eyes, according to our own eyes, as we see fit. So faith, faith is the work of the Holy Spirit to change our life narratives from believing that all life revolves around me and it's up to me to define what I want to be and how I want to be perceived to all life revolves around God. And faithfulness is a lifestyle that comes from a changed life narrative. So friends, what kind of life narrative do you live by? It's very possible to call yourself a Christian when your life goal is your own happiness and comfort and God's glory is second, do you have this faith where your whole life narrative, your whole interpretation of the world has been changed, flipped upside down? Or are you still living in a pseudo-faithful Christian life? So here's the question. How do you know whether your faith is truly given by God or whether it's just a self-mustering. What does a spirit-enabled faith look like? What does it do? Well, it rearranges our priorities in how we make decisions in life. So that's our second point. 
So what is faith? It's the Spirit's work to, to rewrite our life narratives, why we live, who we are. But secondly, what does faith do? It rearranges how we make decisions in life. The author of Hebrews, having explained what faith is, he spends the rest of the chapter um, showing us what faith does in the life of a person. We'll only look at four people today, Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. But the common work of the Spirit is this. Faith makes God our first priority and shapes how we make decisions in worship, in the mundane, in hardship, and in the present. So faith, again, makes God our first priority and what He has to say and shapes how we make decisions in worship, in the mundane, in hardship, and in the present. So let's look at these together briefly. In verse 4, we read that faith was what made Abel's offering to God distinct from Cain's. And often the moral lesson here is, be like Abel and not Cain. Give God the best and don't be cheap. But God does not care about our, our wealth. He doesn't care about how much money we give him. What God really cares about is our heart. So what's really going on here? In order to understand this incident, we have to be reminded that after Adam and Eve sinned, after Cain and Abel's parents sinned in the garden and they disobeyed God, punishment for sin was not placed upon them. But rather, it was punishment for their sin came upon an animal which God took the skins of and covered Adam and Eve's shame. And when God is covering Adam and Eve's shame with this animal skin, he's not doing it because all of a sudden the garden got really cold. And he's not, certainly not doing this because he just realized they're naked, so like, put something on. But when God is doing this, he's instituting a pattern of worship. A pattern of worship that when you come before me, you ought to come the way I institute, the way I call you to, which is, Specifically, the shedding of blood. Coming before a holy God, there needs to be the shedding of blood. And certainly we see this develop all throughout in the Old Testament that with the Levitical priests who before they come to God, in order for God to dwell among them, what do they need to do? They need to shed blood. That's how God demands worship. And most commentators agree that this pattern of worshiping God is a reminder of the Lord's past and future provision. And most commentators agree that this institution of worship would have been passed down from Adam and Eve to their children, Cain and Abel. So when Cain brings his offering to God that has no shedding of blood, it was on his own terms and his own choosing. But Abel, what Abel does differently is he brings his offering by faith. He's putting his trust that there's no other way to worship God than the only way he commanded us to. He's, play, he's not taking upon himself how he wants to worship God, but rather listening to what God has instituted from the beginning. Abel brings his offering by faith, putting his, God's instructions above his own, above his own convenience and above his own opinion. So how, the question is, how about you? Do you have this kind of faith? 
Do you have the faith that is determined to worship God above your own convenience and comfort? Or do you believe that God calls you to serve him at your own convenience? Do you have a faith that moves you to love those whom God loves and you may not have much in common with? Or do you see God calling you to only love those who are easy to love and you want to? Do you have a faith that moves you to offer up your time, your precious time? Everybody's busy here in Southern Maryland. Every time I ask, how are you doing? Busy. (laughs) Do you have a faith that is willing to offer up your time to serve the greater body of, of, of God for God's glory, or, or does your faith make you choose and decide what's worth your time and what's not? How do you decide when and what to serve at church? On another practical note, when I was younger, much younger than today, I'm still young, but much younger, um, I saw tithing as optional in worship. I certainly gave my time to the church, and that was enough, so tithing is something that I refuse to engage in because it's on my own terms and my own convictions. Do you have a faith that moves you to offer up your tithes, not choosing what parts of the worship you want to engage in, and, and tithing is not one of them? Or would you rather tithe into your own retirement funds? And for those of you who do tithe, do you have the faith that truly believes, truly, truly believes that your tithes are God's and you're owed nothing? Or do you have a faith that tries to buy God's favor and affection? Faith, true God-given faith, produces faithfulness to trust the way God calls us to, to worship in our lives and makes it a priority. Let's look at Enoch. Faith produces faithfulness in the mundane, not only worship, but also in the mundane. After Cain and Abel, we read about Enoch. And all we really know about Enoch is that he had a lot of kids that eventually Noah was out of, the lineage of uh, Noah came out of. And we also know um, that Enoch walked with God. That's all we know. But that tells us a lot. Because this phrase in the Old Testament, walked with God, means that someone had a day-to-day relationship with God. A day-to-day relationship with God. Faithfulness in the mundane means that we make decisions in life with God not as a consultant, but as a companion. The faith of Enoch, along with everybody in the Old Testament who walked with God, seeks God's wisdom in small matters and in big matters. In good times and bad times, it's consistent. It's a companion relationship, not a, not a consultant relationship. So here's practically how we can think of this. I do this all the time. But have you, have you ever done this where when someone asks if you want to serve on missions, summertime, and they come to you, um, our first response will be, let me pray about it. Let me pray about it. And I'm not, and certainly you do need time to pray about it. But why is it the case that when summer comes around and we're ready to plan for our vacations, we don't need to pray about that? We don't need to pray about that. Or when some, and this used to happen to me all the time when, in my younger years, my much younger years, um, when someone challenges me to give above and beyond for God's kingdom and glory and the advancement of, advancement of God's kingdom, I'll be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
let me, let me pray about it. Hold, hold there. Let me pray about it. I'll get back to you. But when a really cool cell phone commercial comes on the TV, I don't need to pray about that. Right? Why do we do that? Faith produces faithfulness in the mundane to seek God's leading even in the everyday matters of life. Do you have this faith that walks with God? Church, do you walk with God? What about Noah? In Noah, we find that faith influences Noah's decision to place God as first priority during times of hardship. The author tells us, um, and we can certainly read about it in Genesis 6 through 9, that Noah was warned by God that his life will not be what he thought it would be. See, Noah's plans to lead a comfortable, regular life came second to God's call to brace for a storm. Do you have this faith that says it's okay to abandon your life plans in order to put God's call first? But also a faith that says it is okay that my life is headed towards a storm. We see an example of Noah's faith in Horatio Spafford, the famous author who wrote, It is Well With My Soul, that even though he lost his son to fever, four daughters in a shipwreck, and he lost his fortune in the great fire of Chicago, his faith is what influenced his decision that even still, in his grief, he will worship God. What people often forget is that when you lose a loved one or when you get a diagnosis from a doctor that you did not see coming, the storm, you have not hit the storm yet. The storm is coming. It's still in the future, whether you have to battle that disease or whether you have to live with that loved one who's no longer with you. That's a storm. So how does Horatio Spafford, how does he worship God in the midst of suffering by proclaiming and preaching to his soul that it is well. There are some of you here in our congregation who are going through a difficult time. Some of you here may be carrying bad news from a doctor through a diagnosis you never saw coming. Or someone you know is currently ill. For others, a storm is coming your way. Nobody can live a perfect, pain-free life. In fact, Tim Keller once said that every single person who ever manages to live long enough, they'll receive, without a doubt, an invitation to someone's funeral, whether it be your family member or a friend. Friends, you're headed towards a storm in life. God never promised a pain-free life. And life may not be what you thought it would be. Do you have that faith? God gave Noah, which says it is okay if my life is headed towards a storm. This faith that is faithful in making the ultimate decision during hardship to trust in God as the storm is, making, is approaching rapidly. Do you have that faith? Lastly, in verse 8, we see Abraham's faith in the present. Abraham is scriptures, 
godfather of faith. He's certainly the Apostle Paul's favorite display of faith. He's faith par excellence. And we can see his favoritism because his faith is used as an example more than any other Old Testament figure in the the Bible. But we're only concerned with verse 8 through 10 here, which says that by faith, Abraham was called out from his land, and this is my translation, and he went. He was called out and he went. And we're told that by faith, Abraham lived as a nomad, a sojourner. He never possessed the land of Canaan. What's going on here? Abraham's faith allowed him to see a heavenly home. Abraham's faith was okay with waiting what's in the present because of what was coming in the future. In verse 10, we read this. For he was, Abraham, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's faith transformed his mind to live with an eternal mindset and to long for a heavenly reward rather than an earthly reward. He looked for a heavenly city and he did not want to settle on earthly things. That was his faith. So how, how, that makes us ask the question, how long or how often do you long for heaven? How often do you speak about heaven to people? Summer's here, and most of you cannot wait to go on vacation if you have plans already. And we tell people about it. You, you can't wait uh, because vacation, a trip, gives you rest from work or from family in some ways. Maybe for some of you, you talk about your retirement plans. My parents talk about retirement plans all the time. They didn't have a 401k, but they had a retirement plan called DKIM, DK. And they were waiting for that retirement plan to grow and be able to provide for them. But we talk about our retirement plans all the time, don't we? Because the retirement plan promises us rest and provision. For others, a new job is all you want. It's all you talk about. Whether you complain about your current job because you're not satisfied and you wish you had a better one, a new job is your promised land. Is what you look forward to. Maybe for those who are single, marriage is something you constantly look forward to and talk about because marriage is the promise that someone will always, always love you and be there for you. That's your promised land. Abraham's heart talked and longed for a heavenly reality not not found on this earth. Do you have this faith? Do you have this faith that is constantly looking on the horizon for God to come back? for the Lord to return, for his kingdom to be here on earth? Or have we lost our identity as exiles and become complacent as citizens of this world? Can people tell that you're waiting for heaven more than that you're waiting for retirement? Now, the most unloving thing I could do right now for you all is to end the sermon and say, Let's all work hard and have the faith of these men so we can please God. That would be the most unloving thing I could do right now by telling you, go out and have this faith. Work hard and you'll get there. 
Because maybe you're sitting here this morning and feeling overwhelmed because when you look at the faith of, the, of these men, it's not even close. You're nowhere near. You're nowhere near the faith of Abel, who's able to worship God as God calls, him, calls us to. Or Enoch, we don't really walk with God. Or Noah, we complain and grumble every time that suffering falls upon our plate. Or even Abraham, we don't long for heaven. In fact, we f- maybe forget. We don't have the faith of these men who, whatever they did, they aimed to write God's narrative, God's story, which leads us to the, our concluding point. How do we get this faith? How do we get this faith that rearranges our life narratives and also places God as priority in all areas of life? See, the logical reason would be this. To ask God for it. In fact, in Luke 17, the apostles realized that their faith was weak. So they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, increase my faith. Lord, increase my faith. Church, have you prayed this prayer before? Does it sound like you? Lord, increase my faith. Perhaps you pray this prayer because you don't like having a weak faith. You don't want to be able to not trust in God. You want, to be able, you want to be strong. You don't like anxiety. You want your faith to be better, to be stronger, so that your Christian walk can be more steady. Have you prayed this prayer? Lord, increase my faith. Because if you just increase my faith, everything will be okay. We pray this prayer, Lord, increase my faith, maybe because that's what will determine whether we are a good Christian or not. If that's the case, if the solution for us to have faith, this faith of these men, is to, is to urge our willpower and say, Lord, increase my faith. I just need to have more faith. If that's the case, then the Christian definition of faith and faithfulness is no different than the world. What I mean by that is this. In the world, if you're an unfaithful spouse, the answer is to muster your willpower, just be more faithful. Boom, answer, $200 in counseling. Just be more faithful. In your workplace, if you're unreliable and you're not faithful, the answer is snap out of it. Just be more faithful. Boom, Christian counseling at its best. In your spiritual life, if you're not feeling holy enough, maybe it's to just be more faithful. Just be more faithful. Boom, $400. (laughs) But the Christian faith which the author of Hebrews is pointing us to, is different. If you take a closer look at these men, take a look. You'll find that the author of Hebrews gives us examples of men not with extraordinary faith, but broken, weak, and dependent faith. In other words, it is extraordinary how ordinary the faith that God calls us to have is. You catch that? It's extraordinary how ordinary and broken and dependent the faith that God calls us to have is. We are called to have an ordinary, broken, dependent faith on, in an extraordinary God. You could take any of these men, Abel, Enoch, Noah, 
and even Abraham, the example of faith par excellence, but they were all sinful. They were all broken people, just like yours, like you and me. Their faith was broken and in need of a Savior, just like yours and mine. And their life was not a narrative that celebrated how much faith they could have or how faithful they were, but their life narrative was one where the center was God's faithfulness to them. That's what their life celebrated. See, as good of an offering Abel brought to God, he was looking forward to a greater faithfulness whose offering and sacrifice would end all sacrifices for once and for all. Take the sins of the world. As great as Enoch was with walking with God, and as great as his faith and faithfulness was in his life, he did not celebrate that. He celebrated God's faithfulness to him, and he looked forward to a greater faithfulness where God would give not just a manual on how to live life, but he would give Emmanuel, a God who walks among us. As faithful as Noah was walking to a storm, he was only pointing forward to a greater faithfulness that was to come, Jesus Christ, who walked to the cross. And as great as Abraham may be, he was broken as well. As great as he longed for heaven. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. If you've, if you've been feeling like your faith is weak, and unworthy of God this morning, friend, come to Jesus. Experience his faithfulness for you. Don't try to live your life and see how much faithful you, how faithful you can be, but look at him whose faithfulness is already perfected for you. Be encouraged also that God can take broken, weak, dependent faiths and make a stand on the shoulders of Christ's perfect, blameless faithfulness. And as we stand on his faithfulness, we let faith change our life narratives from us to him. Because you see, a life narrative can only change when a greater narrative takes over. The gospel tells of a great story of faithfulness from an extraordinary God to ordinary people. The gospel tells the narrative of how God had all the right to abandon a people who wanted nothing to do with him. And yet, he's faithful to love us even to the point of sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment of our rebellion on the cross. And this is a story that we've come to know. But do we love the story? Do we see ourselves in the story? In 1997, there was a movie that debuted directed by James Cameron that hit theaters called Titanic. The movie tells the story of two lovers, Rose and Jack, who were aboard the famous ship, the Titanic, which sunk in the ocean. At the end of the movie, I'm about to spoil the movie for you, but I don't really feel that bad because the movie's been out for 20 years. So, <laughs> at the end of the movie, Jack dies and Rose survives. Uh, the freezing water is all because of Jack. And at the end of the movie, we see Rose telling her life story, how she, got, how she had got a family and she remarried and had kids and grandkids. But this story was really an homage to Jack. 
You see? Her life narrative changed because she was captivated and she could not let go of her first love, which was Jack. And she never moved on. She never let go. Friends, we have a better Jack. We really have a Jack who never lets go. Through thick and thin, through life or death, we have a Jack who's always there. Jesus Christ is faithful to you and me even in our sin. And we all like to tell stories, don't we? Especially if we've done something crazy over the weekend or we've, we've done something, we've achieved something great. We all love to tell stories and our lives are telling stories regardless of whether we know it or not. We're all writing narratives. But friends, you could visit the most beautiful places on earth You could climb Mount Everest and have seen the world from the top. But if you haven't seen Christ, you don't have a story to tell. You could eat the most exquisite meals all over the world, experience the most exotic dishes only known to a few. But if you haven't tasted the faithfulness of Christ, you don't have a story to tell. You could be involved in the most loving relationships, have the love of every person you meet, But unless you've experienced the love of Christ on the cross for you, you don't have a story to tell. You could accumulate all the riches of the world, be financially secure, and even have enough money for the next generation. But unless you've acquired Christ as your true treasure, you don't have a story to tell. And you can certainly live a comfortable life surrounded by water and green grass. But unless you found rest in Christ, You don't have a story to tell. How do we get this faithfulness? Friends, experience Christ's faithfulness for you on the cross. Experience his faithfulness for you today. And may it empower you to not make your life about how faithful you can be, but may empower you to celebrate his faithfulness in which our broken faith, our weak and dependent faith become whole. Let's pray. Father, we know that left on our own, our faith is useless. Lord, we know you could give us eternity and left alone, our faith could never compare to yours. But at the same time, Lord, you are faithful and you give us Christ. You give us something better to celebrate not how much how faithful we've been but how faithful he is and lord god as we walk this life may our life write and celebrate this narrative of your faithfulness for your people we pray in jesus name